Howdy, and welcome to Wise About Texas, the Texas History Podcast. As usual, I need to thank everyone for a great response to the show. If you know a Texas history enthusiast, let them know about the show. I'm also getting some invitations to speak on Texas history topics as a result of this program. I love to do that, so email me at host at wiseabouttexas.com if you know a group that needs to get Wise About Texas. Today we're going to go back to 1835. Recall in Episode 3 we learned about the first major engagement between the Texas Army and the Mexican Army at Mission Concepcion right outside present-day San Antonio, which was then called Bejar. Texas won that battle, and today we're going to talk about the siege and the Battle of Bejar, which resulted right after the Battle of Concepcion. Before I begin, let me tell you a little detail I discovered while researching this episode. You remember Robert Calder from Episode 1? He was the guy who went with Benjamin Cromwell Franklin to inform the provisional government that San Jacinto had been won and Texas was free. He was later a judge, and he held some other offices. Well, in Episode 3, I mentioned that the Texans had posted a lookout in the bell tower of Mission Concepcion right before the battle. Robert Calder was that lookout. So there's a trivia question that's guaranteed to win you a bet. Another fact I discovered about the Battle of Concepcion concerns the reason that Austin and the main body of the army arrived about an hour after the battle was over. Apparently, an entire company of soldiers, described as being from eastern Texas, deserted the army shortly before the battle. This delayed Austin's departure. Now, that was important because if Austin had arrived during the action, it's likely Costa's entire force would have been killed or captured, and who knows what the result might have been. Now, right off the bat, when talking about the Siege of Behar, I'm going to tell you the end of the story. The Texans win. The Texas Army forced General Costa to surrender Behar and the Alamo on December 9th, 180 years ago, last week. This episode's being released on December 14th, 2015. General Koss asked for surrender terms on the morning of December 9, 1835. I tell you the end because there are some great side stories about this battle and some insight about the Texas Revolution that I want to share with you. So don't worry too much about the result of the battle because you already know it. Now remember that on October 2, 1835, near Gonzales, the Texans answered a demand from the Mexican army that they give up a cannon by firing that cannon at the army. The citizens at Gonzales then asked Stephen F. Austin to send men and supplies as quickly as possible. The citizens convened a board of war on October 7th and voted to organize the army at Gonzales and begin forming units, arranging supplies, etc. Over the next few days, they arranged for supplies and were welcoming a a steady stream of volunteers. One first-hand account points out, however, that because the volunteers were coming from all overpopulated Texas, They didn't all know each other, and frankly, as Texans tend to be, they were a little bit distrusting of each other uh, as soldiers, which, you know, you can understand. At one point, there was a real chance that the Army was going to break up, but thankfully, Stephen F. Austin arrived in camp. Everyone knew and respected Austin, and he was immediately voted as the commander-in-chief. Now, when Austin took over, he began organizing the Army in earnest. Officers were appointed, field officers were elected, And at this time, Austin really stressed the need to obey orders and maintain military discipline. He realized correctly that this assembled bunch of volunteer citizens could just take off any time they wanted, and he needed their commitment if he was going to beat the organized and experienced Mexican army. Austin sent out dispatches to both Anglo settlers and Tejanos to come join the cause. The alcalde of Victoria, Don Placido Benavides, arranged for 30 men who came to the army and were used as guides and express riders 
because they were so intimately familiar with the countryside. And with that, when the army was organized, Austin began marching toward Behar. And it wasn't long before an advanced spy company ran into a Mexican spy company and they exchanged fire. The Texans ran off the Mexican troops, which got the Texas Army very excited. At this point, Stephen Austin sent a note into Behar to General Koss, hoping that they could meet under a flag of truce and discuss a way to avoid an active conflict. Koss absolutely refused the meeting. That made the Texans mad, as you might imagine, and even more determined to fight. Now, I want to comment that the fighting spirit of the Texans that caused such consternation on the way to San Jacinto as Sam Houston seemed to be retreating, uh, the Army perceived a retreat and were very agitated to fight, and that caused a lot of dissension within the ranks. Well, that spirit was certainly there at Behar in 1835. You can see it. It bears mentioning that prior to the march to Behar in early October, a group of Texans under George Hollingsworth captured the fort at Goliad, the Presidio La Bahia. They didn't do it by attacking the fort directly. They did it by breaking door, down the door of the nearby church and forcing the Mexican troops to surrender. The capture of the fort resulted in the acquisition of some badly needed arms and ammunition, which were immediately sent to the main body of the army. The army eventually reached the banks of Salado Creek outside Behar and set up camp. Now, two very well-known Texas heroes joined the Army at this time. First was James Bowie. Bowie was married to a lady named Ursula Veramendi. The Veramendis were a very prominent Behar family, and Bowie had acquired some status as a result of his marriage. He left Behar to join the Texans and brought information about how Koss was fortifying the city, so that was very useful. The second Texas hero to join the Army at this point was one of the most effective individuals in the Texas Revolution, Erastus Deaf Smith. Now, the nickname Deaf came from the fact that Erastus Smith was very hard of hearing, and in 1836, the word was pronounced Deaf, and of course, now it's usually pronounced Death, but in my continuing quest to live in the past, I think I'm going to call him Deaf Smith from here on out. Deaf Smith had married a resident of Behar and lived there with his family, and he was coming in from a long hunting trip when he ran into a checkpoint that Koss had established outside the town. The guards wouldn't let him go home without checking with General Koss. So the next day, Smith came back and was talking to an officer when a Mexican horseman rode up and tried to grab the bridle of Smith's horse. Smith wheeled the horse and ran away. The Mexicans ended up chasing him at a dead run and actually fired at him. He immediately rode to the Texan camp and vowed to get his revenge for this rude treatment by helping the Texas Army. Word got back to Smith's family, who immediately left Behar and were escorted into the Texan camp. Smith's name is going to come up again and again in the stories of the Texas Revolution because he played such an important role, but the story of how he actually came to join the Army is not well known, so there you have it. Now, I want to shift gears and take you inside the town of the Behar. One of the prominent citizens of Behar, Samuel Maverick, kept a diary of this period, and he was actually detained by Koss along with some other citizens under what was essentially house arrest. He wrote that there was much excitement in Behar when the Mexican army was scrambling to assemble their cannons and get ready to defend the town. The information was flowing into Behar about the Texan activities, but not all of it was really accurate. Some Mexican spies reported up to 1,300 Texans on their way to the city. At one point, Stephen Austin sent Maverick a letter detailing the reinforcements that were actually on the way. This letter is also a great insight into Austin's goal for Texas. In the letter, Austin said that the great object was to give general, united, and effective support to the Constitution of 1824 and to put down centralism, which was uh, the position advocated by Santa Ana. 
Now, it's important to remember at this point that the Texan uprising was considered by both sides really to be an internal Mexican conflict because Santa Ana had uh, abrogated the Federalist Constitution of 1824 and named himself the dictator. Now, there were several Texans, Sam Houston included, who would advocate for total independence for Mexico at this time, but those views evolved over time. Two interesting political circumstances also existed at this time. First, many circulars had gone out calling for Mexican citizens who supported the Constitution of 1824 to rally to the cause. Several Mexican rancheros in the area under Antonio Padilla and Juan Seguin arrived in camp to bolster the Texas Army. They brought news of many Federalist victories in the interior of Mexico, so there was fighting going on inside Mexico, not just in Texas. That resulted in several regiments of the Mexican army that were originally going to come to Texas to have to stay in the interior of Mexico and continue fighting. And although Texas wasn't the only place in Mexico where armed uprisings were occurring, we do know that Santa Ana focused on Texas and managed to make it here with plenty of men. The other issue was that the Texas army consisted of men who had left their land holdings and their farms to come to fight. That meant that there were a bunch of unattended families and farms that would in all likelihood result in destitution should the revolution fail. So Austin decided that a prolonged siege of Behar would be best so the army could wait on the arrival of some artillery and more men and supplies and hopefully prevent the Mexican army from acquiring the men and supplies and ensure a victory. Austin was also concerned because Texas had no government. There was a plan to have a consultation of citizens representing different areas of Texas to meet and form a government, but it hadn't happened. Austin believed that this was critical so the army could have some notion of what it was fighting for, as well as a feeling of a real army, thereby helping out that discipline and order that he knew was so critical. So he paraded the army one morning and delivered a rousing patriotic address on behalf of Texas. He urged the members of the army that were elected to that consultation I mentioned to immediately proceed to San Felipe and organize a government. Someone else had arrived in camp by this time, too. This is mid-October, and that was Sam Houston. And one account written by a soldier uh, states that Houston also addressed the Army. And one of the interesting aspects of his speech, and this speech was recalled by a man named Creed Taylor, who will also appear in several episodes concerning the Texas Revolution. Taylor writes that Sam Houston strongly advocated total independence from Mexico. Houston argued that international help for the Texas Revolution would not come if it were viewed as an internal Mexican problem. However, if they were fighting for total independence, then international aid might come on their behalf and result in a victory. Now, this is interesting because, first, it sort of recalls the same situation that existed during the American Revolution where the help of France was key to the colonist victory, but it also shows that Houston's goal from the get-go was to enlist international assistance specifically in Houston's case from the United States, in the battle with Santa Ana. So Austin dispatched James Bowie and James Fannin to scout the San Antonio missions, which I mentioned as part of Episode 3. They found a lot of provisions in Mission Espada, which Austin was able to purchase on credit. And as the Army moved to Espada, Bowie, Fannin, and their men moved to Concepcion, and the Battle of Concepcion occurred. So go back and listen to episode three for the details of the Battle of Concepcion. Now, one detail that, that didn't get into episode three was that William Barrett Travis, who was at the Battle of Concepcion leading some cavalry, when he, he rode up sort of at the end of the battle as the Mexicans were retreating, and instead of reporting 
what had happened immediately to Austin, he ended up chasing the retreating Mexican army from the field. This is interesting because the notion of Travis as a brash hothead uh, is evidenced here, uh, but if he had turned around and ridden hard to the main body of the army and gotten them to hurry, uh, who knows what might have happened to avoid the prolonged siege. Anyway, when Austin arrived at Concepcion, he was excited to pursue the Mexicans into Bejar, because, but Bowie and Fannin convinced him not to due to the heavy fortifications and all the cannons the Mexicans had set up in the city. Remember, Bowie had just come from there, so he knew what they had. So the Texans settled in for a siege of the town. Now, the Mexican army had fortified the Alamo with 30 or more cannon, and the cavalry and some infantry were in the, in the Alamo. The army would par- the Mexican army would parade from the Alamo to the military plaza while the Texans would watch, and the town was also heavily barricaded. Austin, in the meantime, split the army into two divisions plus the cavalry and took up a position up the river from San Antonio, from Bejar. He had the divisions march around the fortifications out of range, of course, to make a show of strength to the Mexican defenders, and the cavalry also would ride around the fortifications. Now, Austin was trying to draw the Mexicans out of the town and into the open, but he never was successful in doing that. Meanwhile, inside Bejar, the defeat at Concepcion was quite the blow to Mexican morale. What the Texans didn't know was that the troops that Cost sent to Concepcion were among the best infantry in his army, and they were well and thoroughly whipped by the Texans. Samuel Maverick also noted that the increase in fortifications in Bejar meant that while Bejar could have probably been taken by 200 men right after Concepcion, it would now take about 1,500. Uh, later, by the way, Samuel Maverick guided Milam's division into Bejar when the battle eventually did start. Austin decided to conduct what one soldier described as operations of annoyance against the Mexican army. There was a high level of confidence in the Texan ranks after the Battle of Concepcion, and of course the army was itching for a fight. One resident of Bejar, who was in town when the defeated troops returned from Concepcion, noted that the Texans considered the battle a, quote, mere scouting frolic, close quote, but Coase considered it a big blow to his army. In Bihar, in the meantime, as I mentioned earlier, the Mexican army had some hostages. Samuel Maverick, who I've discussed, a man named John Smith, and a Mr. Holmes were held under house arrest in Bihar. One of them, John Smith, was an architect, so while Koss had him confined, he proceeded to observe and draw a very detailed map of the layout of the town and all the defenses. Smith managed to get this map smuggled to Stephen Austin on about November 22, 1835. And then later, eventually, uh, the men made their way to the Texan army. I want to mention one thing that appears in Samuel Maverick's memoirs during the siege of Bejar. One sentence uh, discusses seeing the comet in the sky and describing what it looked like. It turns out that Haley's comet appeared over San Antonio during the siege of Bejar for the first time since 1759. So I thought that that was pretty interesting that everyone seemed to stop and look at the comet. Now I want to relay a pretty funny story that I think shows you how much Texans have not changed really since 1835. One of the military placements of the Texan army was a small redoubt, which was really just a dugout trench works. And they had Uh, They built it on the riverbank. It's described as being on the riverbank directly across from the Alamo, and in it were two small cannons. 
One soldier described the Mexicans as being, quote, highly offended, close quote, when they discovered that the Texans had built this little readout and put guns in it so close to the Alamo. The battery was described as being, quote, not 300 yards from the Alamo and a few hundred yards from the main camp, close quote. Now, some of the men had a grand old time shooting the small, inaccurate guns at the Alamo, occasionally hitting it and causing the plaster to fall off, but really not much more. The Mexicans would shell that small readout, of course, being highly offended by its presence. And what the Texans were actually doing was gambling. The rules were that each man had to call his shot before firing the cannon to indicate which part of the Alamo he was going to hit. And the losers often spent the next day casting lead musket balls for the winners. Well, one day, one of the men loudly offered a bet of his pistols, which he claimed were the best in the camp against any other man's pistols and he said he would hit between the third and fourth windows of the old barracks which is what we today call the long barracks and a a texan in what was described to be a green freeze coat stepped up and said he'd take the bet well the shooter missed and he ended up giving up his guns to the other texan the man in the green coat then said i'll tell you what i will fire it and if i miss i'll give you your pistols back So he carefully aimed. He was very slow and methodical at his movements. And the soldier who wrote the account of the incident noted that the man didn't really appear to hear very well because he seemed totally undisturbed by the noise in the readout. So after spending several minutes adjusting his aim and calculating and readjusting his aim and calculating, he lit the fuse. And when the smoke cleared, the third and fourth windows of the barracks had disappeared. So unanimous applause is said to have accompanied that terrific shot And uh, when asked his name loudly, of course, uh, they asked him, one presumes, uh, the boys in the bunker learned that they had just met Erastus D. Smith. So betting on your cannon shots is exactly what I would imagine my friends and I doing in 1835. So I really don't think Texans have changed all that much. And with the plan of the town drawn by the architect John Smith in hand, Austin ordered his troops paraded and inspected and told him to prepare for an assault on the town at 3 o'clock in the next, the next morning. At 1 o'clock in the morning, however, one of Austin's lieutenant colonels woke him up with the news that the men were refusing to fight. Austin sent his other officers to determine the mood of the troops and found that the same attitude prevailed. Now, Austin was pretty incensed by this, but he had to cancel the attack, so he then began making plans to retreat to the fort at Goliad and spend the winter. Now, what accounted for the change of heart? Well, it turns out that, at least according to another soldier, that Sam Houston had been writing letters to his friends in the Army discouraging an attack. Now, the soldier alleging all of this was William T. Austin, who, though he was not related to Stephen F. Austin, was his aide-de-camp. Austin alleged, William Austin alleges that Houston and his buddy William Wharton carried out a whisper campaign among the soldiers to discourage an attack on Behar and that due to Houston's reputation, that discouragement worked. But Austin had other things to worry about. The consultation that I mentioned earlier had convened, and they actually elected Austin as minister to the United States. So his presence was needed back in the capital, San Felipe de Austin. So he left, and the men uh, elected Edward Burleson as their commander. Burleson organized two divisions and a camp guard. Burleson began organizing the Army foreign assault. But in the meantime, I want to tell you another story about a little encounter with the Mexican army. Word came to the Texas army that Koss had sent to Mexico 
for silver to pay his troops as well as feed for the horses and food for the men. One day, Deef Smith came riding into camp and saying he had spotted the Mexican pack train on the road from the Rio Grande. So over a hundred excited men expecting to capture a train full of Mexican silver headed out to get rich. The Texans attacked the pack train with a fury and soon had sent the Mexican soldiers scattering around the countryside. And so they, they, got, they seized the Mexican train and discovered that they had a bunch of packs of grass. The soldiers had actually been cutting feed for the cavalry horses in the Alamo. So that attack is now known as the grass fight. Another time during the siege, uh, the men in that redoubt I'd talked about were attacked by a party of Mexican sharpshooters who snuck to a point right across the river and started firing on them, forcing them to stay below the walls. Now, some of the Texans escaped to another point on the bank of the river, out of range of the Alamo cannon, but within view of the Mexican force. They managed to silence the Mexican attack, and then they fled, uh, fled toward town. The Mexican troops started running toward the city. The Texans were so excited that they chased the fleeing troops dead into the middle of town. Now, they realized two things all of a sudden. They realized they were in the town of Bejar, and they also realized that they needed, apparently, cooking utensils in camp. So they started breaking into empty houses and taking all the pots and pans and utensils they could carry. Well, the Mexicans, of course, raised the alarm, and the streets started to fill with soldiers, and the artillery, which was near the plaza, started up. And the Texans found themselves in a heck of a fix as they attempted to escape. Luckily, a detachment of Texans came out of the woods uh, north of the town to help them out. And that party of rescuers was headed by, you guessed it, Deef Smith. He was waving his gun in his right hand, and he had the Texan flag in the other, running up and down the front row of the first column of the rescuing force. Now, he wasn't bothered by the whiz of bullets around him because he couldn't hear him anyway. And he thought he was going to finally get his chance at Costa's troops. Seeing Smith come up with the other men, the Mexicans once again retreated back into the safety of the town. And the Texans escaped not only with their lives, but also with the pots and pans that they had appropriated in the cause of Texas independence. Uh, there is no record that I could find of the first meal cooked in the heroic pots, however. All right, aside from the occasional skirmish like the battle for the pots and pans and the capture of the grass train, the men were very anxious for a general assault on the town. They finally got Burleson to address the entire troop. First, he proposed that the army withdraw to the Guadalupe River to await reinforcement from the United States and wait out winter. When the groans and shouts of displeasure of the men had died down, Burleson said, all right, I figured you would do that, and so he proposed an attack plan for the next day, but the order to attack never came. So obviously a wave of discontent was settling in over the camp. Now early the next morning, this is the first part of December, uh, Samuel Maverick, John Smith the architect, and Mr. Holmes made it out of Behar and ended up in the Texan camp. They gave a full report of the conditions. They reported on the locations of the artillery, the numbers of soldiers, and how scarce the supplies were getting. Now, this greatly excited the Texans, and they got even more excited when a Texan scout captured a Mexican officer, and he, too, reported how vulnerable the Costas troops were and the town was. So soon, Burleson's two division commanders, Milam and Johnson, entered Burleson's tent for a conference, and shortly after that, Ben Milam came out from the tent he drew a line in the dirt with the stock of his rifle. 
He waved his hat about above his head and shouted to the men, who will go with old Ben Milam into Behar? And the men just went nuts with excitement. And that's one of the most famous quotes of the Texas Revolution. The Texans wheeled a cannon to a position on the river where it could reach the Alamo. And that gun crew began shelling the Alamo in an effort to distract the Mexican army while the main Texas force moved into town from the north. One division under Milam started marching down what was then called Isaquia Street, with their object being to take the Navarro House. The other division under Johnson moved down Soledad Street to take the Veramendi Palace. The Mexican army, the Mexican artillery, seeing them, started firing down the streets from the plaza. Now, for two days, the advancing Texans fought house to house. As they approached the plaza, they faced Mexican troops on the ground and on top of the adobe buildings. The Texans were making progress, but they had one problem. They were about out of food. The battle was taking longer than anticipated, and rations were running very low. Well, the quartermaster of the army, appropriately named William Cook, came to the rescue. He'd been cooking barbecue, and in the midst of the smoke of the guns, while the air was thick with bullets, the barbecue reached the frontline troops in the town of Behar. It turns out that Cook had noticed that the rear guard was just loafing around camp, so he had him dig pits, bring in cattle, slaughter them, and he barbecued them on those pits in the main camp. Now, you learned during the bonus Thanksgiving episode of this podcast that the first Thanksgiving in Texas was a barbecue. It now turns out that Texas's independence was won, at least in part, by barbecue. So next time you're eating at your favorite barbecue place, remember Texas independence. Another soldier wrote an account of an incident where Henry Carnes, and you'll remember him from the Battle of Concepcion, grabbed a crowbar. Carnes grabbed a crowbar and ordered the men to get ready to storm a house where a particularly large volume of fire was coming. He busted down the door of the house and the men entered. The Mexican soldiers were so surprised that they immediately surrendered. Now, the men weren't obviously able to take prisoners, so they needed to parole the soldiers. But to do so, they needed the imprimatur of the Catholic Church so that the soldiers would view the oath as sacred. So one of the Texans apparently grabbed some charcoal and drew a large cross for each man on the limestone wall. The Mexican soldiers were made to place their hands on the cross and swear not to fight anymore. Well, apparently it worked because those soldiers weren't seen again. The Texans continued their house-to-house battle. The Texans had taken the Veramendi Palace, which was a very important point from which to stage an assault on the main plaza. The officers gathered in the Veramendi House to plan the assault. At this point, Ben Milam went outside to, to observe the plaza through his field glass, which was given to him by Stephen Austin. Apparently, though, a Mexican sniper had taken a position in a nearby cypress tree and found his mark with a single shot hitting Colonel Milam in the head. So unfortunately, we lost a great fighter and leader in Ben Milam, and I really wish he could have lived to participate in the rest of the campaign because he no doubt would have played a significant role. Now, as the Texans advanced, Koss decided to withdraw from the town and concentrate his forces in the Alamo. He issued orders to that effect. Sometime during the next night, though, a Mexican colonel received word that Koss had been assassinated and that he should hold his position. Early the next morning, Koss discovered that 174 other soldiers had deserted, including some officers. The colonel was informed, I'm sure rather strongly, that Koss was very much alive, and not only was he alive, he was wondering why his orders had not been obeyed. A further rumor went out that the deserting Mexican troops had joined the Texans and were about to fight against their former comrades. 
So when he found out about the desertions, Koss apparently lost his temper, threw up his hands, and ordered one of his officers to approach the Texans and surrender, getting the best terms he could manage. Well, guess who reportedly started the rumor of Koss's assassination? You guessed it, Deef Smith. So on the morning of December 9th, three Mexican officers and a bugler emerged from the Alamo and sounded a parlay bugle call. Now, this almost got him killed because the Texan pioneers knew a lot about fighting, but not a lot about bugle calls. Luckily, one of the officers also thought to wave a white handkerchief at the same time. A surrender was negotiated, and Cost took his remaining troops on a march to the Rio Grande, only to join his brother-in-law, Santa Ana, and return to Bejar to avenge his loss with the victory at the Alamo. But for the time being, the Texans had routed the Mexican army and were in command of the major city, Bejar. Well, now we come to the part of the show I call Getting There, where I tell you how to visit some of the places mentioned in the episode. Before I do that, I want to tell you a quick Henry Carnes story that might send you on a little treasure hunt. As the Texan army marched towards Salado in, in their camp, Carnes and some others were sent ahead to scout, and they got into a skirmish with some Mexican soldiers, and Henry Carnes killed one of them. Reportedly, he took the head off the lance that the Mexican soldier was carrying and drove it like a nail into a small pecan tree about four feet off the ground. Texan soldier Creed Taylor reported seeing the lance point in the tree later in 1859 during the Battle of Salado, but described it as nearly concealed from view by the tree growth. Now, to my knowledge, there was no Battle of Salado in 1859. It was in 1842. Uh, So I don't know how accurate this account might be, but apparently the uh, lance head was in the tree at some point many years later. So look up the location of the Battle of Salado Creek, bring your metal detector, and see if you can find an ancient pecan tree with a lance head in it. When the two divisions invaded the center of town, one was trying to take the Navarro House, and the other was trying to take the Veramendi House. The Navarro House is now a state historical site. The Veramendi House, unfortunately, no longer stands. The Navarro House is located at 228 South Laredo Street in San Antonio. The Veramendi House was located at 130, that's 130 Soledad Street in San Antonio. The Veramendi House later became a hotel and later a string of other businesses. It was eventually demolished so that Soledad Street could be widened. There was once a marker placed inside the building located at 130 Soledad Street, which I suppose is still there. I haven't checked. The good news is that the original doors of the Veramendi House were preserved. They now belong to the Alamo Collection, and they're displayed in the Alamo Shrine. Now, the readout where the Texans were gambling on their shots fired at the Alamo is a little bit more of a mystery. I've studied two old maps of the siege, including the Smith map that was smuggled to Austin during the siege, and I've tried to compare them to a modern map of San Antonio and figure out where this readout was. I think that if you go to the Wyndham Riverside Suites on the Riverwalk between North Priestess Street and Navarro Street, just south of College Street, you'll be very close to the location of that bunker. Now, I don't recommend firing a cannon from the Wyndham Hotel toward the Alamo, but that's about where you would have done it in 1835. Ben Milam, who was killed by that sniper outside the Veramendi house, is buried in Milam Park, which is on West Commerce Street, just north of the Meteor restaurant. Now, if there are other locations you'd like to hear about from this episode, please feel free to email me at host at wiseabouttexas.com. 
Well, that wraps it up for Episode 6 of Lies About Texas. Please join hundreds of other Texas history fans in liking and sharing the Wise About Texas Facebook page and follow the show on Twitter at Wise About Texas. Also, I'd appreciate it if you'd take a minute and leave a review on iTunes so other Texas history enthusiasts can find the show. If you have any Texas history topics you'd like me to cover, please email me at host at wiseabouttexas.com or message the show at wiseabouttexas on Twitter. So until next time, God bless Texas, and we'll see you down the road.